This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So here we are, our first episode, sitting opposite each other in our studio in East London, rather than glowering and glaring at each other over the dispatch box in Parliament. How did he describe the budget? A steady as she goes budget. Steady as she goes? What kind of ship does he think he's on? The Titanic? The Marie Celeste? Can I just say, since we last met, there has been a very important Labour economic announcement and one that we wholeheartedly support, and that is the decision to keep him in his job till the general election. Well, Ed, we both lost our jobs, actually. <laughs> you at that general election, me at the uh, after the subsequent Brexit referendum. But I have to say, when I was Chancellor, you were my toughest political opponent, and I never would have guessed we'd be here in this studio, doing this podcast, and trying to take people, aren't we, behind the scenes of how the decisions are made in Britain, the big political decisions, how the economic forces in our world shape those decisions, so that people, as they think about politics, as they're asked to vote in the election that's going to be coming up, they know a little bit more about what really goes on behind those black doors in Downing Street. Drawing lessons from the past, trying to understand the future. Every week we're going to talk about, first, something really important, a big deal which has been in the news all week, something which we just can't avoid focusing on. And this week, that's got to be Chinese spies in Parliament. Then we're going to talk about the big issue that's going to shape politics for the coming months and economic decision-making. 
So this week, we're going to look at the basic state pension, the triple lock, the decisions that Jeremy Hunt faces about how much to increase those things by in the coming year, and the difficult decisions the Labour opposition face about whether to support those moves or oppose them. And then we want to talk about something which we think is a big deal, which is actually going to have a big impact upon economics and politics in the UK, maybe around the world, but maybe isn't front and centre, not in people's minds, not leading the news, but a big deal nonetheless. And today... We're going to talk about the big spike we've seen in recent months in the global oil price and talk about how that's going to affect the decisions and the challenges the British government's going to face in the coming months. That's right. So let's start with um, the pretty extraordinary revelation at the beginning of the week that the British government believes, the intelligence agencies believe, that there is a Chinese spy working, or was working, has been suspended now, at the heart of Parliament. I know. Uh, and, and and going back to you, I mean, actually, the two people were arrested in March. So it's just become public. But for months, the Prime Minister, the Foreign Secretary have known that the intelligence agencies arrested Chinese spies in Parliament. And a certain irony where they seem to have been working. Well, they one of them is alleged, the alleged one of the alleged spies is that supposed to have been working for the China Research Group, which was the body set up by some Tory MPs to argue for a tougher policy on China. So somewhat ironic uh, that that was um, penetrated by Chinese intelligence. Although it makes sense for the Chinese. If you're going to get in there and find out what's going on, being in the China Research Group is probably quite smart. That's right. I mean... Let's be clear, however, they can't have been that smart if they've been caught. Let's make this observation, Ed, and both of us were privy to intelligence material when we were at the top of government. It used to come in a special uh, folder with strap written on it. And Strap uh, three was the highest one. Uh, and you had to have had like really big, heavy, proper vetting. It took months to be allowed to see the Strap three reports. Or get yourself elected. That was one of the ironies, actually. The uh, You didn't get the vetting if you were an elected politician. Oh, I so, so I was vetted because I went in in 97 as an advisor, but you didn't get vetted because you've just been chosen by the people. Yeah, and oh. Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn would have seen that stuff as well, if it had ever happened. <laughs> Might come back to that. But one thing we know is that spying goes on. It's been going on for as long as there have been countries. I don't think it's a big surprise that China's trying to spy on Britain. There are lots of people who try and spy on Britain. So, I think I think it's actually quite a big surprise to people to find out there's been Chinese spies in Parliament. Just like last year when you had the spy balloons uh, shot down in America, I think it was quite a big shock to a lot of Americans to find out the Chinese are flying spy balloons over our country. They have, and they're going to continue to want to try and spy on us, including in our House of Commons. We should actually credit our intelligence agencies here for potentially exposing this ring, this Chinese spying ring or this Chinese agent, of course. There's a court case and the individual involved denies it. We should put that on the record. But there's no doubt that China has dramatically increased its espionage efforts over recent years. And when you went to China as Chancellor of the Exchequer, what advice were you given by the intelligence agencies about, you know, your room, conversations, your phone, computers, how to behave? Well, the very straightforward advice was don't take your mobile phone. Don't take your own personal mobile phone. or At all. Not at all. In fact, we were given burner phones, essentially, you know, phones that were only used for the China trips. We'd also do this, by the way, when we were travelling to countries like Russia. And they were quite inconvenient because they didn't have any of your contacts on it. You couldn't get your emails. So it was a bit of a pain in the ass to take these phones, but obviously vital or else they would have, from the moment you landed, penetrated the mobile phone you were carrying. And did you have to check your, you know, the lights in your room for bugs or... Um 
put I pieces al- of hair over your bathroom door. I always assumed that the hotel rooms I was staying in were bugged. I always assumed that, you know, while I was out of the room, someone would come in and go through my luggage and so on. And by the way, I seem to remember on one trip with one of my treasury officials, they came back unexpectedly in the middle of the day and found a couple of Chinese men in the room indeed going through their luggage. So, you know, that was part of the course. We knew what to expect. And it's although- interesting because 10 years before that, when I was the the G20 deputy, so I was in charge for the treasury of our international engagement, went out to China quite a few times and... Uh, I took my own mobile phone. In fact, I probably spoke to Gordon Brown or other Treasury people from China back. I don't remember there being that degree of, I mean, I wasn't Chancellor, but we were still having sensitive conversations. I think probably China has become a bigger cause for concern over the last 25 years. There's a whole division of the People's Liberation Army listening to your mobile phone messages, even now, Ed. Well, I know. The thing which always slightly threw me, I mean, Barry Gardner, who was a member of Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, was kind of targeted by the Chinese. I mean, I've got to say, of all the people in the opposition, let alone in the government, in the opposition to target, I mean, Barry Gardner, I mean, it's just kind of slightly surprising oh, yeah. that he would be their number one target. Well, maybe you have to find a, you know, a chink in the armour and um, Barry Gardner was the chink. But it wasn't only the opposition government too? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, look, we took uh, security very seriously. In fact, when I arrived as Chancellor, it's interesting. I think the security services, MI6, MI5, GCHQ, have been very, very focused on Islamist terrorism for a whole decade, since the Iraq War, since 9-11. A huge proportion of their budget was spent tracking down potential terrorist jihadi plots and so on, and of course, trying to keep our country safe as a result. And a much smaller proportion of the MI6, MI5 budget at that time was devoted to spying on potentially hostile countries like Russia, dealing with the spies that they may be sending in our direction. And one of the things I used to argue about when I was trying to set their budgets as Chancellor was maybe we should be trying to increase the kind of counter-espionage budget, the surveillance work we conduct against uh, foreign powers that are potentially hostile to us. And, you know, I'm sure since we both left, uh, with things like the Russian poisoning in Salisbury, these uh, Chinese stories, that, uh, you know, we're back to a much more classic kind of John le Carre world where these intelligence agencies are very focused on Russia, on China, on Iran. Not that I would put all those countries in the same category. And one of the things we'll probably come back to talk about is how, you know, the relationship with China is a complicated one because it's full of opportunity as well as risk. There was a guy that we worked with. Uh, I won't name him because he's a civil servant. I think he's told you this story as well, that he um, had been having lots of dealings with the Chinese. And when he finished a particular part of his career, they gave him a, a mug, a special presentation mug, and it sat in his kitchen for um, for years on, on the shelf and was used by the family. And then one day he was unpacking the dishwasher and it turned out that the bottom of the mug had come off and there in the bottom of the mug was a listening device. So the Chinese decided, well, somebody had decided to put a listening device in the mug they gave him. Kind of makes you sort of wonder, was there some poor guy in China who spent years listening daily to this guy's family having a chat over the breakfast table? I mean, what were they seeking to, to find out? But what we know, though, is the government has responded today to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee's investigation. They've said that they think there are likely to be other 
potential Chinese spies trying to infiltrate Parliament. So this is not going to go away. As you said earlier, there are lots of wider things to talk about. The Chinese economy, the trading relationship. Are those backbenchers on the Conservative Party right to say the government should be hardening its attitude to China? Because um, the accusation is that in your period with David Cameron, you were too friendly with the Chinese. All things we must talk about can't today. So we're going to come back to those in future weeks. Yeah, I look forward to that. It's, of course, one of the biggest issues of our time, how we deal with China. So let's turn to pensions. Actually, just before you do, just on my feed on um, Twitter X, breaking news is from Sky. Government refuses to guarantee second leg of HS2 to Manchester. Seems as though number 10 not confirming not speculating, but not confirming they're going to go ahead. What's going on? Well, very disappointing news, frankly, if it's true. I mean, this comes after we saw in the newspapers this morning, The Independent, one of those classic things where the photographer gets a photo of someone walking out of Downing Street with a briefing note, and it was uh, a Prime Minister-Chancellor bilateral where they were discussing savings from HS2. And I think what they're thinking of is it's already being built to Birmingham and indeed on to Crewe, do you cancel the leg to Manchester? And for me, that would be a complete betrayal of the North. And bonkers when you go around saying we need long-term decisions for the country, we need to invest in the infrastructure of the country, we need to improve the productivity of the country. Here's something everyone's been signed up to for years. And at the last moment, they're they're saying, oh, it might be cancelled or it is going to be cancelled. And you you can't establish a long-term economic plan if in the short term you keep changing it. Of course, they've already said they're not going to go ahead with the um, Eastern Spur up to um, to Leeds. Back in, I think it was 2013, when I was Shadow Chancellor, I made a speech saying no blank cheque for HS2. At that time, the cost was like £38 billion. It's now over £100 billion. In fact, I know because going into the, the talks you had with the Permanent Secretary and they went up to the 2015 election, one of the things they said to me is, we'll have to have an immediate review if Labour wins of HS2 because of the spiralling costs. Much too late to change the Birmingham leg. I have to say, if I'm thinking about where I can really get bang for buck in terms of public investment, is Birmingham to the north the most important thing? Because actually you can get from Manchester and Leeds down to London quite quickly. The big gaping hole is east-west between Leeds and Manchester, over to Liverpool, up to Newcastle. If it was me and I was thinking about this hard, I might think, cancel the second leg and go ahead with the northern leg as the better thing to do. You can't build these railways overnight. That's one thing we've learned, right? And it's all very well saying, cancel this leg and build the other. You cancel this leg, that is 13 years of work, preparation, planning in Parliament, endless studies... Uh, you know, then you're basically saying nothing's going to be built because it will take years to then design a high-speed line across the Pennines, which I'm also very much in favour of. And, you know, mm. we've had this always with the Jubilee line, with the M25, with the Channel Tunnel. There's always problems with these projects. They're huge, but when they're done, people say, can you imagine a world without them? So and- why is Jeremy Hunt refusing to say he's going to do it. It's a mistake. Yes, we've got to get costs under control. We've got to ask ourselves why other countries in Europe can build high-speed lines much more cheaply than we can. But there's a much bigger point here, which is, are we prepared to take the difficult long-term decisions which are controversial on infrastructure to provide for our country's future? That's exactly the kind of decision that I faced on the Elizabeth Line, which people told me to cancel back in 2010. It's transformed connectivity in London. HS2 will transform connectivity 
to the north of England, and it would be a real, real tragedy if this government abandoned it. But every pound you spend on one thing is a pound you can't spend on something else. And if the choice is crew to Manchester or Leeds to Manchester, I tell you, I'd put Leeds to Manchester first. Ed, I don't disagree that we also need the line across the Bennines. I'm the person who argued most for it. But they've not even committed to that. Yeah, but it's money you're spending now over the next few years. And by the way, the HS2 budget every year is a fraction of the housing benefit budget, for example. So in the scale of government spending, yes, these are big sums, but they're not overwhelming sums. And if you want to build these big long-term capital projects, they take years to build the political consensus. When you cancel them, it takes decades for them to come back. So you think it's a mistake? I think it might be the right thing to do. We don't know what the truth is because this is just number 10 saying they won't respond to speculation. There's now a gaping vacuum of fact when it comes to what the government's strategy actually is about HS2. We're going to be discussing HS2 a number of times in the coming months, I reckon. So here's another big issue, though, for British politics, and it's uh, all in the run-up to Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement in a couple of months' time. And that is, what does the government do about the triple lock on pensions? And indeed, more broadly, on um, benefits and how much they should go up. And this week, we had the numbers for inflation and earnings. The September numbers are always a big deal, a potentially quite dangerous moment for Charles' exchequer. I should think Jeremy Hunt has been worrying about these figures. Yeah, that's right, Ed. So it's a very important number, in particular around the basic state pension, and that is the 8.5% rise in earnings in the economy, which means the next April, that's what he's got to increase the pension by, and the pension is one of the biggest items of government. And he has to do that with the September numbers. He has to, and it's all part of something called the triple lock, which I introduced in 2010. It was actually an idea that the Liberal Democrats insisted on in the coalition I was part of then. And that is that the basic state pension should either go up with the higher of earnings in the economy, what people are earning out there who are doing work, or inflation, or if the number 2.5% is higher than those two, it should go up by 2.5%. That's the kind of floor on it. And so the triple lock is you get the higher of earnings, inflation, or 2.5%. It was introduced in my first budget, but it has a long history. There was a reason why, having come out of many years of opposition, both ourselves and indeed the Liberal Democrats at the time wanted to introduce a triple lock. And this month's a big deal because inflation might be 3 maybe earnings might be 4%. At the moment, they are double that. You're talking about earnings above 8%, uh, inflation not much below 8%. Yeah, so for Jeremy Hunt, there's a kind of question, which is, and, and indeed for the government more widely, do we spend a huge amount of government money now on increasing the pension and other benefits next year? Or do we try and shave some savings off by not increasing the pension or or the other working age benefits by as much as that? On the argument, the next year inflation is going to be lower, earnings won't be going up as much, and so it's fairer to the taxpayer. And you know, it also let's be clear is potentially politically useful because you can save money that you could deploy if you're a Conservative Chancellor on pre-election tax cuts. That's why it's in the news right now. But Ed, this has got a long history. This policy had come out of really sort of a two-decade-long debate in British politics, ever since Margaret Thatcher had broken the link between pensions and earnings. Normally, in over many decades, earnings have gone up more than inflation. 
because the country's got richer. That, it was argued, had eroded pensioner incomes over the 1980s and 1990s. And then, Ed, you know, when you were in government, you fought off attempts by the likes of Barbara Castle, former Labour cabinet minister, to relink the pension with earnings and stuck with the inflation target. That's right. The decision that we made was that rather than giving the earnings rise to everybody, to every pensioner, rich and poor, the right thing to do was to keep the pension, the basic pension going up in line with prices, which was lower, and then have a thing called the pension credit, which really focused on the poorest third of pensioners who were much more likely to be the pensioners who were in poverty. Big arguments about this. but uh, And we were, we were resisting that pressure until September 1999, which was when we got the uprating wrong. So we were committed to uprating the basic pension in line with inflation. The inflation number came in for September 1999. This was the 75p disaster. It was, because it came in at one point. It's a long preamble to telling us you screwed up on the pension uprating. We did, but there was a reason, which was we were continuing with the previous policy. Inflation, though, was really low, 1.1%. We didn't quite realise at the time it was going to be 75p. We just knew that we were sticking with the formula and the right thing to do was not to do a U-turn, stick to the course. And it was... And it was, it was, but it was it, the most expensive 75p in history. It was, <laughs> because, because... What happened subsequently? Oh. Well, what happened subsequently was we were under huge pressure because suddenly, you know, not just... I mean, it was a fairness issue. It was a moral issue. How can you be betraying pensioners with 75p a week and as a consequence to find ways around this, the winter fuel allowance, £200 uh, at no, Christmas, think, then the the free bus Gordon pass. Brown was very focused. I was the shadow chancellor, you know, against Gordon Brown. He was very focused on the pensioner vote and rewarding pensioners and making sure pensioners voted Labour. So all of this leads to 2010. I've arrived as chancellor. Well, there had been one change along the way, which was the Turner Commission recommended changing the basic pension to earnings from prices. And that had been done in that period. So we had gone to, um, I think at the time, our commitment was earlier prices or the inflation target, whichever was um, higher. But then we changed to the earnings link. But then you went a step further than that. So, you know, what oppositions do is, of course, they position themselves to pick up on unpopular things the government has done and change policy, a more promised change policy. So I arrive as Chancellor. I'm in a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. We already have a policy, which is we're going to go with the earnings link. Liberal Democrats say, well, no, we've actually in the Liberal Democrat manifesto got this thing called the triple log, which is it should be the higher each year, the pension needs to go up above the most of either inflation, earnings or two and a half percent. And I'm putting together the coalition in the cabinet office. This was actually agreed before in the few days between the general election and the formation of the coalition government. And I remember asking the civil servants who had been appointed to the coalition negotiations you know, is this going to cost a huge amount, this Liberal Democrat policy? And they said, no. What? They said, no. They said, look, you know, it's actually the, the triple lock is not a huge made. commitment because of where, you know, the truth uh, is the two and a half percent is not going to bite so much anymore. Inflation's come down, blah, blah, blah. So, of course, fast forward now 13 years later, um, I would say it's done a huge amount to eliminate or uh, alleviate pensioner poverty in Britain, the triple lock. I'm very proud of that. There used to be big pensioner marches through London complaining about pensioner poverty. You don't hear so much about that anymore. It's obviously generated a big debate about the cost of this policy going forward because we're now in a period where inflation and earnings are like 7 8%, not 
the kind of two, three percent that we're talking. The, the Institute for Fiscal Studies say if you had uprated the basic pensions since you introduced a triple lock by either prices or by earnings, things would have turned out to be broadly over those 13 years the same. But by using the triple lock, it means that the basic pension is actually £20 a week higher than it would have been. So the overall cost of the triple lock has been billions of pounds over this period. And they say if you carry on with the triple lock over the next 30 years, it's going to cost a further between five and almost £50 billion a year. That's it, 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 It's very hard to know what's going to happen to prices and wages. But it's seen now as a very, very big spending commitment. And then the reason why this debate has happened, triggered by, to me, quite bizarrely, the Work and Pensions Secretary of State, the Cabinet Minister, Mel Stride, went on to ITV this week and said this. In the very, very long term, if you have an arrangement like the triple lot that keeps ratcheting up pensions by the higher of highest of three different metrics. It seems to me that it does become unsustainable in the very long term. But we're not in the very long term. We're in today. Uh, we have a commitment to it. Do you think you should be keeping it when you go into well, the next general election? That, that's a very big fiscal decision, and it's not one for me to opine on. I mean, well, Openly speculating about getting rid of the triple lock. What are they up to? Well, to kind of paraphrase John Maynard Keynes, one of your heroes, Ed, uh, in the very long term, we're all dead. Well, we're certainly politically dead if you, if you neglect the pensioner vote. It's quite risky. If you think back to 2017, Theresa May fought the election. In the election campaign, they suddenly raised the idea of a tax on people's homes to pay for social care. And the pensioner vote got very, very cross. And we talked about Gordon Brown in 1999. Is it really sensible, this close to election, for Rishi Sunak or the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt to suddenly start either doing something tricksy or saying, we're going to break a promise on pensions? Well, they're desperately short of cash, right? They're short of cash to fund public services. They're short of cash for a pre-election tax cut. And, you know, if you're not going to touch benefits and you're not going to touch pensions, that's like a huge chunk of government spending. And then what, where, where are you going to get the money from? Not defence, not education, not health and so on. So let me make the case, Ed, let's explore in this podcast, the case for why you might want to underrate benefits and pensions in the coming year. So your, your argument will be, you know, the inflation and earnings numbers are very high at the moment. They are going to come down. It's going to cost the country a huge amount if we're going to put up pensions and uh, benefits by around 7%. If we do it by 5%, say, first of all, we're fighting inflation, and that's the core mission of the government. We're not pumping money into the economy. We're, you know, in effect, kind of taking some money out of what was expected. Second, we're going to generate quite a lot of savings, which otherwise we're going to have to squeeze public services for. Second argument. Third... We might be able to return some of this to working people. And there's a fairness argument. Why should working people be paying more for retired pensioners or indeed for people on out-of-work benefits? And then the final argument, I'm afraid it does come into the conversations, doesn't it, Ed? We've been in those rooms in Downing Street. You think, hmm, and it's going to be tough for our political opponents. Because once the Conservatives announce this, there might be a lot of hue and cry from pressure groups and so on, but the question almost immediately will go to the shadow chancellor, Labour's shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, Keir Starmer and the like. So what, are you going to reverse this Tory policy? Where are you going to find the billions of pounds to pay higher benefits to people? And 
in the kind of zero-sum game that oppositions face, we've both been shadow chancellor, you have to find the money. You have to say, well, I'll cut this other thing or I'll put this tax up. And I think it's kind of quite an attractive political trap for the Conservatives to set, whilst also having a kind of good economic and indeed fairness rationale. You tried to set that trap for me in 2012. Um, you said you were going to cap working tax credits, tax credits going to um, working age people at 1%. And I decided that we were going to oppose that. But I couldn't afford to say I was going to increase working benefits without showing how I would pay for it. And I think at the time, we said that we would restrict tax relief for the highest earners um, down to the broadly the basic rate. But the argument we had, I remember you were saying all these people are getting tax credits. They're the ones who are sitting in their bedrooms while working people are going to work, peering through the curtains. And I was saying, no, 60% of people getting these work tax credits are in work. And taking money away from people in work in this way is not fair. Go forward to 2015, when the um, the Shadow Cabinet post-election, I'd gone by this point, decided not to um, oppose the continuation of that benefit freeze. That's what Jeremy Corbyn picked up and ran with as Labour backing something which is unfair. So there's a bit of history here. The only thing I would say to you, though, is one, given what's happened the last year with working people seeing their wages falling absolutely, big rise in energy bills, I think um, at the moment restricting tax credits would be quite unpopular with quite a lot of people. But put that to one side, it's fundamentally about pensioners. If the government decides not to uprate the pension now with the triple lock commitment that they fought the last election on, I think the opposition sits back and says, you know, you're crazy. Well, as I say, the triple lock has done a huge amount to eliminate pension and poverty. I think if you were wanting to change it, and we are in a much more inflationary environment than the one in which I introduced it, you'd have to do something that has been done before. In fact, we, you know, you alluded to it earlier, Ed. When we've had tricky issues, sometimes reports have been set up that are cross-party. So Adair Turner's report uh, on the state pension age you know, was set up by Labour, implemented by, by me as Chancellor and the Conservatives, and that's seen the state pension age go up from 65 to 66 to 67, 68. By the way, very different from what's happened in countries like France, where there's been a real fight. Second good example, I remember Peter Mandelson coming to me before the 2010 election. He was the Deputy Prime Minister and saying, we want to put up student fees, tuition fees, but we can't do that before an election. It's too difficult for Labour. Why don't we set up a report and why you also, hopefully you as Conservatives, you also want to see the tuition fees go up so that the universities are better funded. Um, why don't you sign up to this commission doing it can report after the election? But that just raises the question, why would you want to raise the salience of this right now with William Hague, with Mel Stride in PMQs? It sort of charges up the politics when actually you'd want to downplay its significance and salience and try and, and not come back to till after the election. I'm sure that if you're the Labour Shadow Chancellor, you're hoping to get to a place where you can make some savings if there's a, a cross-party consensus for this. But this doesn't really seem to be the right way to go about it. I think the problem is, Ed, you're, you're, you're saying, why hasn't the government got perfect political foresight? Why can't it see round corners? And why isn't it doing much better politically than it is? I'm and not saying that. I'm I saying, think it's a, it's a theme we're going to come back to. I'm in this saying, podcast. why is the Work and Pension Secretary going on the radio speculating about your manifesto promises from the last election being unsustainable in the long term without any 
answer to the question, well, what are you going to commit to in the election? I mean, that that interview was crackers, if you ask me. Anyway, enough on pensions for now. Look, we are going to come back to this a number of times in the coming months. Next, we're going to talk about something which we think everyone's missed, but is actually really important and significant and is also going to shape British economics and politics in the coming year. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome back. Now we're going to talk about something which we think is probably not in the news, being discussed enough politically, but is actually a, a big deal, which could have a really significant complicating impact on the government's prospects for the election and uh, the course of the economy too. And that is, this week, the global oil price. That's right, Ed. So it's been going up. It's been going up a lot over this summer. In July, it was around $75 a barrel. It's now $93 a barrel. That was the latest number I saw. And this is driven by the decision of Russia, no friend of Britain, who and Vladimir Putin. They've decided to curtail production of oil. And the Saudis, who are supposed to be allies, have also announced that they are reducing production of oil. At the same time, the Chinese economy is recovering and consuming more oil. And all of that has put the oil price up. And what that means for the government is two things. First of all, the price of the pump is going up and people really notice those numbers when they fill up. It's one of the most direct indicators of inflation. And second, of course, it does have an impact on the government's claim to be fighting inflation. They're already laying the groundwork. The government have started to see these numbers by saying there's going to be a blip and, you know, inflation might go up in the next month. But it's going to make life quite hard for the government as they try and set out an economic plan this autumn. There's a thing called stagflation, which happens when the economy is slowing down, unemployment's rising, but at the same time, 
the inflation situation is getting worse. And that is exactly what we are now experiencing, because on the one hand, the economy contracted in July, so the economy is getting smaller and unemployment has started to rise. But because of that global oil price spike, the Bank of England is saying that they're likely to see inflation go up rather than down, question mark, does the Bank of England therefore have to raise interest rates more to get inflation down? The thing you can say definitely is that for Rishi Sunak's commitment to half inflation by the end of the year, that is a harder thing to pull off because of what's happened to the global oil price. It's kind of one of those lessons you learn in politics. When you set a target, it's always easier to set a target which you can control with your actions and your spending. But the problem with the inflation rate, actually the problem with Labour's commitment um, in their missions to be the fastest growing economy in the, the G7, that depends upon what other countries are doing, global events, and sometimes global events can come along like this oil price spike and really, really make things complicated. Yeah, I think we should actually talk in a future episode about the weakness of the British economy. We've had some other data this week, not just the unemployment numbers you alluded to, but vacancies in the economy are falling. The house price index today has just shown a sharp drop, the sharpest since the financial crisis. And you're right, Ed, that you know, it's it's very tempting when you're sitting there in number 11 to think, you know, I'm in command of this great ship called the British economy and I can turn it left, I can turn it right, I can increase its speed, I can reduce it. I think, you know, often the Bank of England will also feel like that. But of course, that's not the case. And you are subject to big global forces, the decisions of other countries like Saudi Arabia. And it's just a reminder that, you know, whatever the government's plan, which is we're going to go into the general election with inflation falling and the economy growing, the real world may come and intrude. People remember back to the 1970s, uh, all the events which happened, high inflation, all the way through to the winter of discontent. That started, things got much worse anyway, in 1973, when the OPEC countries decided to restrict the supply of oil. Big, huge spike in oil prices sent inflation spiralling up. And we're seeing in a different way, countries again choosing to restrict oil supply, pushing up the price. And it's one of these things which I remember from my time in government, there were certain things internationally you knew how to get purchase over, but actually it's very hard to persuade the oil-producing countries to do what we want them to do because, you know, it's not in their interest. And it's not necessarily clear that Saudi Arabia or, or, or Russia are that keen on listening to us. Well, it's certainly going to make also for an interesting visit from the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, quite a controversial figure, of course. His arrival in Britain in the coming weeks is probably going to be an excuse for the government to have a go at him. I remember being in the cabinet room when Barack Obama came to Britain in 2012. He was facing re-election. He had what they call in America gas prices, petrol prices going up. It was a big, big problem for him before his election. And he started a conversation in the cabinet room saying, you know, we've got to look at the oil price. He didn't talk about his election. He said, you know, we think there's dysfunction in the market. The US is thinking of releasing a strategic reserve. I remember there were sort of straight-laced British officials and my fellow cabinet members who were part of that meeting going like, we don't think there's any dysfunction in the oil market. And finally I said, hold on, what the president's saying is he's up for election this autumn, the gas price is going up and we're his friends, can we help him bring it down? And Obama said... I'm pitching and someone's catching. Uh, I remember that meeting. And, and what did you do, though? 
Well, there wasn't a lot we could do because Britain doesn't have a big oil oil reserve, but it meant that we certainly weren't going to object to the Americans doing what they wanted to do. And I can't remember whether it made a huge difference at the time. As it happens, the US is now a big oil producer. So we don't just have to deal with the Saudi Arabias and Russias of this world on oil anymore. But unfortunately, Britain, something we, we may talk about, Ed, in a future podcast, is not the big North Sea oil producer it once was. And indeed, if your friends in the Labour Party get their way, we won't be producing any oil. Well, look, Joe Biden um, facing re-election is struggling with uh, higher petrol prices in America at the moment. That's politically quite um, difficult for him. And so even being self-sufficient in oil doesn't um, insulate you from those political pressures. I was thinking back to my time as being a the Treasury Minister 2006-07. One of the responsibilities I had was that, that um, His Royal Highness, the Duke of York, Prince Andrew, was a, um, a trade ambassador, worked for UK Trade International uh, and travelled around the world um, promoting British trade and he also used to play quite a lot of golf and um, was always wanting to have helicopters. It was quite complicated to deal with. But the one thing that he was actually effective at doing was carrying messages from the government or from business to the oil-producing nations into the, the Gulf states. This the, was oil or massage oil? Uh, I think we're talking about crude oil here. Rather <laughs> crude <laughs> allusion you made there. Because basically, because he was a prince... And as you said, we have the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia arriving in Britain in the autumn. But there's always been these factions of princes and royal families. And the one thing he could do as a royal himself was go into that sort of royal milieu and um, meet them on their own terms, like them. They loved it, have conversations. Uh, whether it was value for money, I'm not totally Are you, sure. Are you suggesting... Prince Andrew should return to the colours. We should call him I'm, up to help. I'm just, I don't I'm, think the, the problem just, about... Yeah, I'm just looking that back 16 years ago <laughs> and saying that that is how things were then. It's hard to influence these guys. Prince Andrew at the time claimed to be able to do things that the rest of us couldn't do. But, you know, no, I think those days have gone. Right, so, so we're not suggesting... We are not suggesting that at all. We're Just to be clear, Rishi Sunak should no. not ask Prince Andrew to help him out this so When I said that oil was a big issue for British politics, I did not mean connected to the royal household. I was just saying, what's going to happen to inflation? What's going to happen to growth? What's going to happen to the fiscal implications of um, going ahead with the fuel duty escalator, which is in the numbers now, or freezing them again? On all those fronts, what is happening in Russia and Saudi Arabia to the global oil price is going to make things more complicated for the Chancellor and affect the course of British politics over the coming year. So we're coming towards the end of our first episode. Now it's time for your questions. When we were doing the pilots, our producer Ellie had to invent some questions for us to answer. She did a good job. She did a very good job, but not as good as the real people of the real world who've been contacting us with their questions. We've had tons. Yes, they've been sending in their questions to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. And here's the first one. Hello, my name is Esme Bruce. I'm a politics student at Notre Dame College in Leeds. And I was wondering what tips you had for other politics A-level students. Really good question, Esme. I'd say two things. First of all, to do politics well, you've got to understand current affairs, but also history. And you've always got to be asking, how is what's happened in the past going to help us understand what's happening now? Sometimes because it gives you real tips and sometimes because actually you can see that things are happening in a very different way from the past. And then secondly, 
Uh, it's all about seeing how ideologies and kind of views and thought can jar when it comes to reality and whether you can actually implement your manifesto or pursue your political philosophy. Because as we saw last year with Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, sometimes being ideological can really clash against the uh, the real world. So I'd say, Esme, I did uh, politics A-level. And the thing I re- that stuck with me actually throughout my political career was some of the theory I did. It's not very fashionable. You know, in politics, you're supposed to, you know, follow current affairs, and that's obviously really important. But I remember for my A-level studying how does the British Constitution actually work, what are the powers of the House of Lords, and reading some kind of key political philosophy texts like Rousseau, Marx, John Stuart Mill, which I don't think I'd ever have got round to reading if I'd uh, been an MP uh, later. So, Did you not read Keynes? I did also read Keynes, but Dev, I didn't did do not, I didn't do economics. But you, did, you didn't take it in, did you? Well, I did actually, because I think you'll find that Keynes also believed in periods of prosperity, he, which he, we generated. Anyway, he was, that's he was a sound money man, Keynes. We, uh, he was a good, he was a good treasury man. And, he was. So, thank you, Esme, for that question. Our next one comes from Tim Jones. Turns out Tim Jones is actually in Tajikistan emailing us, but uh, he's a long-term German resident. And he says, will you have international guests on your show like Wolfgang Schorbler? I mean, who and blimey? That's high end. Wolfgang Schäuble. I think I don't think most people in British politics will know who he is. So he was the German finance minister all the time that I was Chancellor of the Exchequer. He's an incredibly interesting man, one of the big figures of post-war German history. He's the guy who negotiated the unification of East and West Germany. And he also uses a wheelchair because someone tried to assassinate him and he was shot several times. Uh, he had a huge impact, obviously, on him and his family. So a fascinating person and a great person we could have a conversation with. He would he has some pretty strong views about the direction Britain has taken in recent years. So a high-end suggestion, Tim, but a really good one. And finally, Edward Atwell lewis has asked us, how big a part does nostalgia play in politics? Ed? Definitely, there are times when nostalgia is really important in for Labour evoking 1945. Think back to John Major and then run up to 1992 talking about, you know, warm beer and the kind of ponds in English villages as being the kind of country he was wanting to preserve. I think, actually, I'm going to say that the opposite is more important in politics. It's actually the opposite of nostalgia in a positive way. The Germans will have a word for it. I'm not exactly sure what the right word in English is. But if you think about, you know, the winter of discontent or Black Wednesday or the global financial crisis, think of the Liam Byrne letter saying there's no money left. Events oh, which you are, remember that letter. Ed. I do remember that letter. And events which are... I must bring in a copy for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we should, that is absolutely worth a discussion because it was a total outrage the way in which that was used. But put that to one side. Negative events in the past which evoke um, bad memories, the opposite of, like, you know, warm, sunny nostalgia, I think those are the things which have much, much more mm. resonance in British politics. And if you can, if you can make people fear negatively history is going to repeat itself, then that is very potent. It's certainly true that events like the winter of discontent or Black Wednesday or the global financial crash can hang over politics for a very, very long time. But I think politics at its best is the future business. And I think one of the things that's missing in British politics right now from both 
actually the Rishi Sunak government and the Keir Starmer opposition is a sense of excitement about the future, optimism about the future. I think there's a kind of malaise at the moment hanging over Britain and we're sort of rather stuck. But what does that mean you're nostalgic for then? Well, I think we're nostalgic for a time when governments talked about how dramatic improvements they could make to the education system, public service reform was on the agenda, people were excited about where the British economy was going. That was the period of politics that I, you and I were active 1945? in. 1945? Well, that's that's going back a bit far. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I don't think either British political party, the major party at the moment, is, is owning the future. And uh, it's going to be a big fight this autumn. So you Who, say, who's going to be the future business? 1997 you're nostalgic for. Well, that was a little bit... I, I felt a little twinge of excitement at a change of government, even though I was working in 10 Downing Street at the time. But it wasn't as good as 2010, Ed. That, that was a pretty good year. Well, and do you think that people will be looking back in 20 years' time with nostalgia on the general election of 2024? We're about to find out. It could actually happen in January 2025. We'll yeah. perhaps talk about that one day as well. Okay. That's it. Thanks for all your questions. Remember, you can always get in touch with us by sending questions, comments by email or sending us a voice note to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. You can also follow us on social media at Poll Currency. And we'd love to get your feedback. What do you like about this show? What should we be doing more of? What should we be doing less of? And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a nice review on your podcast app. And if you didn't enjoy it, please don't. We'll see you next week. See you next Thursday. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.